And materialism it has, you know, become the defining characteristic of the community. There was someone, a professor, somewhere else who was a musmach of YU, someone I think who is probably not from, who published a scathing critique of the modern Orthodox community as being essentially an upper class, you know, country club. And the defining element of belonging to is that you have to be well-to-do. Uh, it was pretty harsh, but sometimes, sometimes it feels like it's not off the mark. Are Jews obsessed with money? Do we care a bit too much about materialism? That's the topic in this week's episode. I took the trek down to the city, to Manhattan, New York, to visit with a leading rabbi, Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, over at Yeshiva University to discuss just that. And stay tuned to the end of this episode, where I sat down with the dean of their business school about an exciting opportunity for those looking to level up their career. A new fund has been created, really cool MBA program. You don't want to miss it. He'll explain what I mean. And now, here is this week's episode with Rabbi Jeremy Weeder. Being a Jew? Awesome. Managing personal finances? Not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Welcome to another episode of Kosher Money. Privileged to have Rabbi Jeremy Weeder here with us at YU. I got lost on the way here. I went to, I think, East 85th Street. Clearly you come here often. Yeah, No, this is my first time at YU. It's a massive uh, complex and... I feel like I need like a little bit of a drone tour to acquaint myself with this. Rabbi Weeder, thank you so much for, for joining us. And we've listened to quite a bit of your previous speeches and particularly on the topics of finance. And it speaks to you, right? There's clearly a passion you have as it relates to finance. Why is that? And what can you share with us today? This issue of materialism and economics in our community is an existential issue for basically 99% of the community. Unless you're born into wealth, um, this is a struggle for almost everybody. For some people, it's a greater struggle. For some people, it's a less of a struggle. But it really is a struggle, and it's an existential issue. It threatens, for the way I see it, it threatens uh, the, our community as an ongoing concern. Um, it ties, the materialism issue really ties together with the second issue, which is all part of this, which is the question of yeshiva tuition. Mm-hmm. And I think that some of the underlying, they're two separate issues, but I think that some of the problems in dealing with both of them are it's the same underlying issue, the attitudes towards money, or it might term the value of money. You mentioned that the 99.9% of people have an issue with money at some points in their lives. Wouldn't it be 100% right? Even if someone does come into wealth and they're born with the term as a silver spoon in their mouth, don't they have struggles? Maybe they're different struggles. They don't need to accumulate wealth. Maybe it's having a stronger connection with God. Do poorer people or people with less monetary possessions, do they have a stronger connection because they're more reliant? on that higher power? I, I, one thing, maybe I should be clearer about the, the previous comment that I made. I don't mean to suggest that, that people who have wealth don't have struggles in this world. They're just generally not economic struggles. Mm. The Gemara Moe Katan says that there are three things in this world, Bane Chayim is only children, a length of life, and economic sustenance that are love It's not dependent upon, you know, it's not based upon your merit. It's just the way things are. So even people who happen to accumulate or inherit wealth 
that doesn't mean they don't doesn't often come with all sorts of problems for themselves or their children, but it's not the day to day economic struggle. That is a, a basic requirement for everybody. You need you do need to be able to support yourself. You need to be able to eat. You need to be able to have a shelter, you know, over your head. You need to have clothing at a minimum level. And for many people, that's a struggle. If you're born with this, so your problems might be different ones, but not this particular one. I think that is certainly true that a person who has less. Uh, is more rely upon God and perhaps may foster a deeper connection. I don't know if it really correlates. You'll have poor people who are so obsessed, understandably, with their with their daily struggle that they really don't develop that connection with God. And you may have wealthy people who know how to put their wealth in proper perspective. I don't know that that's typically the case, but I think there certainly are some people who have a perspective on that, and they too may have a close relationship with God. What happens as someone on the lower end of the scale starts to attain wealth? and they become wealthier. Do they remember where they came from? And this can apply to quite a bit of people, especially as they earn more money in their lives and and start becoming higher net worth individuals. So it's very interesting that you asked that. There was uh, there are studies of the brain uh, using imaging uh, that explain something that was uh, termed in the Harvard Business Review as the power par- paradox. Uh, when people acquire power or wealth, their brains change. And many of the social qualities that allowed them to rise in the first place get lost or are weakened. Uh, one of those qualities is empathy. Uh, so before you achieve that, that status, so you see yourself as connected to others, as dependent upon others, but then you rise all the way up and you lose that connection. And it's not a surprise that amazingly, when they study percentage of giving of charity in this country, poor people give proportionally more mm. than wealthy people on average because they feel connected. They understand what it is, whereas people who have become wealthy uh, certainly uh, run into the danger of forgetting where they came from. Uh, I would say that uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's farewell speech, uh, that is the central theme. The central theme is that uh, the danger of becoming wealthy and forgetting where you came from. And over and over and over, you know, Moshe repeats that message. And so I don't want to suggest that there aren't people who become wealthy who don't remember where they came from, but it is an inherent danger in such a thing. If I might cite a related, not the exact same thing, but it's very, it's part of what our expectations are. Recently, in the last few months, there was an an article, an op-ed published by, I think, Paul Krugman. I think he was the one who describes, it was the New York Times op-ed. He describes how he was supposed to speak at an economic conference. He's, I think, a Nobel Prize winner in Brazil. He gets to the airport and there's terrible traffic. So what do they do? They send a helicopter to pick him up. So there's great heat. He's the traffic, he goes, makes the presentation. On the way home, he gets in the car and he finds himself in the car and he's incredibly frustrated. He thinks it's outrageous that he's waiting in traffic. From literally one trip in a helicopter has already changed, mm-hmm. reset his expectations that he shouldn't have to wait in this traffic. And he's reflecting upon this. So it takes such a little thing to do that. Um, and I think it, it is a great danger for a lot of people. Would you say that that's the benefits? And now I'm now I'm curious because obviously that's something that in our society we value charity, we value tzedakah. In fact, there's there's a mandate on some level to give miser or ten percent of a person's income to charity. I, I want to correct that. The mandate is really twenty percent. Ten percent is a me the benefit, but the ideal is twenty. But the ideal I'm is twenty percent. We're going to go with that. So would you say that that's why? And, and whether you hold that it's a custom or whether you hold it's an actual you know command, biblical commandment today, but would you say that that's the Torah's sort of antidote? to the problem that you're suggesting that people who become wealthy have sort of the potential to have a dearth of empathy comes along the Torah and says, regardless of whether you're feeling it or not, there's a a mandate for you to think about people that have less than you. So I I think that is that is certainly a piece of it. I I think there's a larger piece as well. Um, The tour 
in his introduction to the laws of tzedakah, of charity, um, really presents a somewhat different framing. He says that the way a person is supposed to look at his or her property is that basically you are just a, an executor of an estate. You're a trustee. And the money all belongs to God. Uh, and he directs you to do this. He directs you to give this portion to the poor. And he allows you to use the rest of it. So you should be grateful that he allows you to use the rest of it. So I, I think you are correct that it certainly contributes. Having to give such a meaningful amount certainly should have the impact of impressing upon a person, of connecting to other people. But I think that there's even a further thing that Torah demands, which is really to look at your money as if really you're just a trustee. So let's take the gloves off. Let's talk meat boards, gorgeous cars, lavish Pesach programs. Do you, in your estimation, find that Orthodox Jews are overly obsessed with materialism? Is it not an Orthodox Jewish specific issue? Should we be more mindful about what society is doing and how we operate on another level? How do you look at the two side by side? First thing that I would say is that it's not a uniquely Orthodox or Jewish problem. I think there is a question of degree, uh, which is typically proportional to the standards of a community. Uh, I can speak only personal experience with the modern Orthodox community. I think in many segments of the modern Orthodox community, a materialism it has you know, become the defining characteristic of the community. There was someone, a professor, somewhere else who was a musmach of YU, someone I think who is probably not from, who published a scathing critique of the modern Orthodox community as being essentially an upper class, you know, country club. And the defining element of belonging to is that you have to be well-to-do. Uh, it was pretty harsh, but sometimes, sometimes it feels like it's not off the mark. And, and I want to be clear, I know lots and lots of wonderful modern Orthodox Balabatim or serious B'nai Torah who are not... So this is not their obsession, um, but it seems like it has become more and more common. From what I am told, and I don't know if this is true, it's happening in the yeshiva world as well. And my sense, though, is that it's a question of degree. The more money you have, the more materialistic. It just you know, it's a it keeps mo- it keeps moving up. I think it's true for America as well. I think this is a case where the values of money of the broader Western society have penetrated the entire Orthodox community. There are some values, conflicts that some parts of the community are at least better at identifying uh, that their values conflicts and push back much harder. Um, but this is one that I think people are often blind to, um, that the ethos of materialism, that the American, I would say the American version of capitalism's ethos, or the, maybe the conservative version of capitalism, America's ethos, is not the same as that of Torah. So I think that the problem certainly has gotten much worse and continues to get worse. You know, when you talk about Pesach programs, a teacher of mine tells me about his father was a Rosh Hashiva here, Michael Bernstein, and they used to go to the Catskills for Pesach. And I think the most interesting thing that you could tell me about that was that his father was makbid to drink the seltzer without the hashkacha, as opposed to a particular hashkacha that he thought so little of the rabbi who gave the hashkacha. That's about as exciting as it got. These were not fancy food. His mother was like the Rebbitzin here in YU, who was, who was a mother to so many rabbis who passed through. His mother needed a break. Uh, they were going to a, someplace in the Catskills. And this was not being on a YU salary, as I think many in Avodos Kodesh could understand, and it was even truer back then. This could not have been a place that cost very much money. 
Um, I think we'd probably term it today a dive, you know, like something in the Catskills. And you went there because it was Hamish, because the people who were there, it wasn't probably an, an eat all you can fest. You didn't have headliners entertaining it. You know, probably many of the guests who went could have given the shirim. They didn't need a fancy skull and resins because they were telling me to come. They just needed a break. But today it seems like something, you know, has gotten, you know, something totally out of hand. I was once invited to a Pesach program. Someone was, you know, called. My wife tried telling the person that my husband is probably not going to be interested. He said, I don't, I, I think he finally accepted that. He told my wife, every hush of a rub has a program. Okay. Uh, and I think it, it's terrible. It's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. It's been a pet peeve of mine when the ads do show up and there are those who come as, you know, the mentalist and the rabbis and like you said, the scholar in residence and the entertainer and I would imagine most of them are getting free rides, but it's creating this peer pressure where the Rabbanim are supposed to be our leaders and people that we look up to, but it's creating this this pressure to want to go. And most people cannot afford it. Zevi, what was the what's the what's the going rate of a, a family of six? I don't know for seven? all the hotels, but just one that we looked into, I think was forty thousand dollars for two rooms. And this is eight days, right? It's not like an eighty day program, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is it, you know it, it's intense, so. You know, it's, it, I find that it's a little bit of mixed messaging. So I've observed in conversation that I cannot go to one of these programs as a rabbi because I have stated publicly from the floor of the base medrash downstairs that when Rabbanim go, they are giving their teaching and their headline in the program, they are giving a to it. I think it's very unfortunate. I understand that there are some Rabbanim and from their wives who work hard all year and they want to break. It's unfortunate, but I think that doing this basically gives the okay and says that this is an appropriate thing. And, and at least on a spiritual vein, I don't mean on the literal sense, I think it's giving hashgacha to chazer. Somebody pushes back. Let's say somebody would push back to you and say, look, you know, I'm wealthy, not me personally, but somebody who would, who is saying this. Mm-hmm. I'm wealthy. I give a lot of charity, give a lot of tzedakah, and I want to spend my money as, you know, as is my prerogative on a fancy wedding, on a nice car, on a nice house. And it's not my responsibility that to set a standard that other people should look at me and then, you know, want to follow that or creating unrealistic standards. It's my prerogative and other people have their prerogative, which is to live within their means. Is that a kosher statement? Is that fair? So on the most technical level, once a person has given their chomesh, they are technically allowed to spend their money on dvarim hamutarim, things that are technically permissible if they wish. In terms of being in line with Torah values, I, I don't think that that's correct. Um, there's a long history, not recently, but of sumptuary laws, which prohibited Jews from engaging in all kinds of behaviors when they made smachot, when they made weddings, celebrations, how many guests they could invite, which is for two reasons, at least. Number one is the impact upon the rest of the Jewish community, and number two, uh, out of fear of inciting anti-Semitism. Now, in the United States, it might be a little bit less of an issue, although I think more than I would have thought a year ago. So we certainly have a notion that conspicuous consumption is deeply problematic on a communal level. But I I think that it runs actually much deeper than that, even when it's not conspicuous consumption. Um, There is a Gemara in Tainus, the the Talmud there states, when the tzibur, when the community is sharui bitzar, is suffering, is ensconced in pain, literally, a person shouldn't say, I'll go to my house, and I'll eat and I'll drink. Perfectly fine. And if he does that, the Gemara cites a verse from Yeshaya, which is like striking. Eat and drink, make merry, as we would say, because tomorrow we're going to die. The Gemara, the Gemara, and that, that's for average people. 
Uh, that's not even the biggest, the most wicked people, the biggest Rishayim, according to the Gemara. So the message here, I think, is clear that when, the, when there are lots and lots of people in the community struggling, to be engaged even in inconspicuous consumption is problematic. But how much more so when you engage in conspicuous consumption, it's, it's pouring salt in the wound. You know, I would say that I was asked once the question, you know, what, what would you say to people who something similar to this, you know, going on vacation? And my, my response was, look, I'll tell you what, go on vacation and enjoy whatever it is you want to do. You go to the fanciest ski slopes in, 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 in Vail and, and drink, you know, a drink, whatever, what's kosher out of fancy glasses, whatever it is, and take whatever your pictures, but share them with nobody who wasn't on the trip. Okay, at least that much. And I think what you realize is that there's a not an insignificant piece of the consumption where part of the pleasure is showing everybody else. And that's deeply problematic. And I think that there's really a larger issue, which is tznius. The idea of, I don't know, there's not a good translation. I think tznius privacy is the best translation. And in our community, I think across the from community, there's a tendency to focus tznius on one topic, women, how women dress. And certainly how women dress and how men dress is a piece of that that involves tznius and involves other things as well. But tznius means not showing what you have, not showing off. It means keeping things private that should be private. Or a better way of saying it is that in the Torah's view, in Chazal's view, everything should be assumed to be private until there's a reason that it should be public. We read in last week's Parsha, the Gemara Yoma says, Why is that last word, Lemor, there? It's superfluous. What do you need that for? The Gemara says that everything that you're told should be assumed that you're not allowed to repeat it until you're given permission to repeat it. Everything is Bebal Tomar, And I think that that reflects in general the, what we'll call the default option, the setting that should be, is that I only share things that actually should be shared. So the idea, even if even if one could justify inconspicuous consumption, the idea that you're going to do things that is very much conspicuous that everybody sees is the quintessential violation of tzniyas, of privacy, of modesty. And it's one of the central values of Torah. So it's really hard to understand why it should be that it's appropriate to engage in certain kinds of consumption. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first, a message from Infinity Land Services. You know them. They've been a sponsor for a while. They understand the complexities of the real estate market. If you're looking for a smooth closing, you're looking for Infinity Land Services. You're going to get personalized service. They have attention and detail to everything along the way, and they have a real commitment to excellence. And basically, their track record speaks for itself. Visit ilstitle.com. You'll see a recent list of their transactions, a lot of them very, very, very large. And if you're looking for stories and drama, do not go to ilstitle.com. But if you're looking for someone passionate and someone who can get the job done, they've been at this for over two decades. That's literally over 20 years. They are the ones for you. Mark Hershkowitz, super awesome team. They're nice people. They're to the point. They get it incredible team, ilstitle.com. Tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you. You will be thankful. And now back to this week's episode. Children don't have that garden place, right? They're they're at recess. Hey, you know where I'm going for Pesach? Or hey, midwinter, my family's going here. And you can try to be all that private about it. And then your child comes home and says, hey, Chaim's going to Vail, Colorado for five days. Why aren't we? Everyone's going. And then you're like doing the math. You're like, 
everyone like yeah, literally every <laughs> single kid in my class is going to Colorado for midwinter. Why aren't we? What's what's a healthy way to address that so that the child doesn't feel excluded? But also, is the answer always no? Is that the healthiest way to go about it to not allow a grand trip once every few years? My first answer is, and it's not the answer is move, find another community or school. I, I understand this problem very much on a personal level. I understood it with one of my children. And part of the issue wasn't, it happened to be in our case, it wasn't necessarily a question of affording. It had to do with the yeshiva break schedule and why use vacation schedule, which really just overlapped two days. But this is something familiar to me. I think one of the things you have to do is to talk to your children about what is important, but they may ask you, then what is everybody else thinking? Why do, why do we live here? And that's a really, really tough issue. I don't know how to handle that. It's really hard. We are better at living as adults with a certain kind of dissonance. Children see the world for better and worse in more in black and white. And it is very hard for them. I don't think there's a, is a good answer. I, I, you know, some you can't help what other children, or other families are doing. Sometimes schools have to be sensitive. Uh, in, in this particular school that my children went to a number of years earlier, friends of ours who had children slightly older told of the following kindergarten assignment. I guess they were trying to teach them math. So they said, when they would go around the classes, how many rooms do you have in your house? And I'm thinking about that. And, you know, this school is located in a community which is a little bit more upscale than the community in which I live. And I'm thinking, did you think about this assignment before you actually gave it to the kids? What the impact upon it is? And, oh, this poor kid from my community, we have seven rooms in our house, whereas half the kids in the class, oh, I have 13, I have 17. So that's something that you can, as a teacher or as a school, think about before. But it is a very, very difficult issue. I mean, sometimes the answer is it's better off having your child in a different school where you won't have as much of an issue. The problem is it gets harder and harder. And sometimes you choose a school because that school is the right school for your child otherwise. And then you have to deal with helping your child see through this. And it's not easy. Zavi, I wonder if we talk about out-of-town communities. Is it dreamy to think that they don't have issues and struggles like this. It seems like maybe out of town, it's not hyper-focused on affluence. The, the the way of living is not, you know, chasing every dollar, or, or am I completely off? I, I don't know what, you know, to me, you, when you said move, I, I think that's a question people have to ask themselves before they actually make a move to a community and figure out if they have the right principles that they want to build their family uh, uh, around. Yeah, so let me, let me, it's a really interesting question. I want to sort of frame it with some of the feedback that we've gotten from the Dave Ramsey episode that we filmed about four or five months ago. A lot of the feedback that we got from the Dave Ramsey episode was he just doesn't get our community. Like he doesn't, maybe we didn't explain it well enough, but he just doesn't get our community because his prescription, even for the, when presented with the Orthodox community's challenges, his prescription was, look, at the end of the day, whether God wants you to, or whether it's just the right thing, you shouldn't be in debt. Now, if, if you're making $35,000 and you're not Jewish, maybe that means eating rice and beans every night until you can afford to do more. But if you're an Orthodox Jewish person and you want to live in the tri-state area, you want to live in the five towns in Teaneck and Long Island, and it means going into debt or spending money that you don't have, don't do it. Move somewhere else. Where? I don't know. How much is it going to cost? Figure it out. Do whatever you need to do to stay out of debt, period, full stop, whatever that means for your particular lifestyle. And a lot of the pushback we got was like, I, I don't know that we can do that. I don't know. Maybe I want to live in Teaneck. Maybe I want to live in Lakewood. Maybe I want to live in the five towns. I don't know that I can push myself to do that. Is it reasonable to ask an Orthodox Jewish family to assume that sort of mindset and just do it? Yes and no. I think it's 
one of the things about him, he's an evangelical. If you're an evangelical, there are lots and lots of places in this country that you can live which are less expensive. Being an Orthodox Jew, there are a limited number of options. Everybody needs community, except for there are Christians all over the place. There aren't Orthodox Jews all over the place. Um, it is true. There are communities out of town. I should put that in quotes, out of town. You know, from our perspective on the East Coast, they, you know, many on the East Coast, they, that's called flyover country. But there are non-tri-state area communities. And, and again, the modern Orthodox communities especially tend to be very expensive, whether you're talking about Silver Spring or Lower Marion or parts of Miami or L.A. Uh, so for modern Orthodox Jews, it's even, a, even more challenging. It feels like that we need greater infrastructure. But there are communities that are not the most expensive communities, even for modern Orthodox Jews, that people can move to. There are a couple of challenges in that. Um, there are, there are, I should say there are certainly definitely some benefits. The pace of life tends to be slower in many of these communities. Economic opportunities, you have to make sure you have an economic opportunity. You do have to be able to have a job there. But um, there are a lot of nice things about those communities. But there are really two challenges that have to be acknowledged. Number one is that the biggest burden for people who live frugally, who, 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 who don't go on vacation, who live in small houses, who, who buy used cars, who do everything to not spend money you don't have to spend. There's one, what I'll call the pig and the snake, which you can't escape even if you go to an out-of-town modern Orthodox community, and that's yeshiva tuition. Yeshiva tuition is a little bit less, but the basic arithmetic still can be crushing. Let's just take a family of four. And even in out-of-town communities, my sense is that tuition there can be close to, if not 20, more than $20,000. Let's say $20,000. That means that in order to send four kids to yeshiva day school, you have to earn $120,000 pre-tax just to pay yeshiva tuition. Now add whatever other expenses are, are in there. And kosher food out of town might be sometimes more expensive than some of the places, you know, if you live in Teaneck, you, if you go up to Muncie, you can probably save some money on the food that you're buying. So if you live in, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, your choices are more limited. So so that that which is the biggest issue, right? If you didn't have to pay yeshiva tuition and you wanted to live in the Bergen County Jewish community, there are less expensive communities. You don't have to live in Teaneck. You could live in Fairlawn. I, I suspect as I say this, Fairlawn is probably getting more expensive too, but it's probably still a number of years behind. You can find, you can buy a small house. You can find something that is certainly considerably less expensive than what most people are or think that they have to buy. But the yeshiva tuition piece, you can't get away from. And it's worse in the tri-state area, right? If you live in Bergen County, I'm not talking about sending to some of the New York City yeshivas, which are astronomical, but even in Bergen County, assume that you're going to pay $25,000 a child. So that our number has now been bucked up to 150 from the 120 that, that I've given you. And you just think about what kind of jobs, what single jobs pay that kind of money. They're a fairly limited number, and that's before you pay for everything else. And so even if both of you are working, it's very challenging. The other piece, which I think is challenging, is people do want to be close to family. Uh, we live in an American society in particular, and I think it's true of the Western world. We've moved towards the nuclear family away from the broader family. I think that mostly has been a negative. Um, again, there may be places in Brooklyn where people are close to family, but it has been marked by a tendency that people, you live in the home, children live with their parents, and maybe there's an elderly parent there, but that's about it, as opposed to more, I'll call it a clan-like structure, for lack of a better term. I don't think that's actually good for anybody, but it is the reality we face. But it's one thing, you know, if you live in Teaneck and your parents live in 
you know, uh, Riverdale or the like. It's another one you're living in Cleveland and they're living in Riverdale. And that's more challenging for so many reasons. So I think he's correct in a sense that at a certain point, it's not a choice. You need to choose a place that is more affordable. But I would question in some cases how much more affordable it is. Right. I mean, I would push back on that just a little bit. I was, you know, the we were in in Florida recently and Florida, as we're, we're, we're recording this at the end of March in 2023, um, the state of Florida has just passed a law providing $8,000 per family, per kid in private schools. And we actually met with a modern Orthodox school in, I think it was the Boca area. And they said that out of their entire parent body, there were five parents that applied for a tuition scholarship post this reduction, meaning that this was going to, you know, I wouldn't say solve the problem, but it was certainly going to make a difference. And so I guess I would push back and just say, if somebody really wants to find a solution, if Dave Ramsey were sitting across there, even understanding the Orthodox community, I think he would say, look, now again, the family piece, you're right. There's nothing to say to that. If family takes priority, then family takes priority. But I do wonder if there's not more that could be done to, to for people to push themselves to find a way to make it work. I can't argue with that. I, again, I think that the choices there are limited. One of the things that remains to be seen, an issue that you and I discussed a little bit, which is the question of government aid for yeshivas. I have two primary objections to government funding that are principled ones. I have a lot of smaller concerns, one which I'll mention, but two primary issues. Number one is that taking funding from the government for our yeshivas ultimately may mean having strings attached to that money. So we see these fights going on right now in the public schools. This is the big fight against, I'll, I'm, not, I'm not taking any particular position or trying to start against the, the wokeism, um, but it's fair to say that there are a lot of public schools that are teaching views about gender and gender issues that are diametrically opposed to Torah views and values. And if you take government money. I could almost be certain in New York and New Jersey at a certain point, if a lot of money would be coming into the schools, they would demand that the social studies curriculum teach these things. And you have two choices. You can either teach them, which is so deeply problematic, or you cannot, in which case you'll be stealing from the government. And neither is an acceptable solution. Uh, the money comes with strings attached. The second issue, and this is for sure true in the modern Orthodox community, maybe it's different in the yeshiva community, because the modern Orthodox community is one of the wealthiest ethnic communities in this country. So maybe it's different. But I feel that certainly in the case of the modern Orthodox community, it's taking from those who have far less for those who already have plenty. And what I mean by that is the following. Government money is not a limitless pool. Um, lots of the people who are opposed to raising their taxes are very happy to push for vouchers and things like that. But at a certain point, the pool of money is limited, which means if it's being taken for private schools of any kind, it's coming out of the public schools. Now, money doesn't solve all problems in the public schools. Mark Zuckerberg discovered that in Newark. Um, the problems there are not just money, also to use something that is a dirty word in certain circles. There are issues of culture, culture of poverty, which have to be addressed. But if you don't have money, you're not going to have a very hard time addressing that as well. And therefore, I certainly, I will speak for the modern Orthodox community. We are such a wealthy community. The money is not even distributed, we can afford to pay for our school and not be taken out of the public pot where the money is needed much more. Even if we're paying our property taxes and we don't get a penny out of the public school system, which is ostensibly what it's geared for, and even if part two, and even if you know the the the, the local state, the local government or the local city is giving $750 million for a football stadium, we, 
Like, don't we so, rank somewhere there? There are a couple of things to say about that. So as taxpayers, when they're spending $750 million on a sports stadium, we should all be fighting against that. Now, one avla doesn't <laughs> justify another one. Okay. I, I want to also point out really two things. Firstly, and again, I can speak to my community only. Um, people complain about that, except for I will tell you that in the Orthodox community, let's say in a place like Teaneck, and I assume this is true elsewhere also, the kids who are most difficult to educate because they are struggling with all sorts of issues develop mental disabilities, emotional, psych- more and more psychological emotions who cannot be accommodated or aren't being accommodated in yeshiva day schools, they wind up in, in the public school system and often placed out of district. Those are expensive and the public schools by law have to pay for it. So if you were to take just Teaneck, and I suspect this applies in other communities, you would discover that many, many people in Teaneck, unfortunately, are getting their money's worth out of their property taxes paying for schools. And in number two, just really the larger point. I have the sense sometimes that this part of the conversation is that we have no responsibility to the rest of society. We want our own money to go for our own schools, let their money go for their schools. That's not the idea of public education. Very often people who want to defend the public, and I'm not saying that the public schools always spend their money perfectly, but if you want to make sure that there's a public accounting, do that. I think that's very important. But at the same time, you know, people who are defending the public schools, they like to remind us that, you know, it's good for your, for your property values, that you have good public schools. It shouldn't matter. We should want good public schools because we bear a responsibility to society as well. As citizens of this country, we should want good public schools for good schools for all kids, even if it means paying a little bit more. We choose to take our kids out of public schools. We have good reasons for doing so. We have a different agenda in terms of what we want to educate them with, uh, and it doesn't work for many reasons. It doesn't work to put them in public schools, but that doesn't absolve us of our responsibility to the rest of our country, the rest of our fellow citizens. So if we had no money, and again, I, I won't speak to the to the right-wing community because I don't live there and I don't know its realities, um, although they might be the same. In my community, there is plenty of money. I suspect that there are probably 10 families, I don't have any specific in mind or know the exact, who could probably pay for all of yeshivas and barely flinch. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit. Maybe you need 25 families. And so the idea that we should be turning to, to you know, for government funding leaves me very uncomfortable. There's a separate issue, which I'll speak only to the non-Orthodox community, that I am convinced that if you gave us $8,000 for our schools, it would be a help for a very short amount of time, but then it would just be a reason that we could spend on more things. That wouldn't reduce tuition. That would just be, oh, we have more money to spend on other things. Uh, we have a problem, and, and and this is a larger attitudinal problem, uh, that this, this debate was discussed a number of years ago. Should we have Chevrolet schools and Cadillac schools? And, and my feeling is that we should have Chevy schools. That's what our school should be. We should not be creating these edifices. It's bad for everybody. It's bad for our community. We should have solid education. We don't need all the bells and whistles. That, uh, that are part of it. A quick break from this week's episode. We have Shmuel Shaiwitz, you guessed it, of approved funding. I want to talk credit scores, right? When you're 18, you get a credit card, you start building up your credit score. A, how important is a credit score when you're buying a home? And also, when I go onto my bank's website and it says my credit score is 730, is that actually accurate? Is that what you see on your side? Give it to me straight. Great question. Very common. I would say that um, it's so important for somebody to be mindful about their credit score because today the banking industry is so focused on the actual credit score that you have, where somebody with a 780 credit score will get a significantly better rate for their car loan, for their student loan, certainly for their mortgage loan, than somebody who has excellent credit but a 700 credit score. 
So those 20, 40, 60, 80 points have a significant impact to the point where sometimes we'll work with people who may have a 699 credit score. And I'll tell them, look, you, there are things that you should be doing and you could be doing and take advantage of that because that one point will make or break the deal and make or break an eighth or a quarter percent in rate. People ask me, what is the difference between this morning? Literally, I had a client conversation with a client and their wife had a credit score of 700 or right under 700. And he was close to 800. And I said, you will have at least a half a percent different in interest rate mm. unless your wife improves her credit score. Alternatively, we restructured the whole loan and we figured out that we can probably take the wife off of the mortgage and leave it under just his name. But the point is an actual credit score and, and the steps that somebody should be taking to improve their credit, monitor their credit and maximize their credit score is more critical than ever, especially in this environment where a lot of people are living off of debt and are trying to use debt in, in banking and in finance to buy a house. And to your second question of if you have access to a credit monitoring or a credit mm -hmm. score through your bank or through your credit card company, it's often going to be different than what the bank is going to use when they're evaluating a loan. And most people think that the bank score will be worse and they're always afraid and reluctant to let me run their credit when I want to, you know, quote them a rate because everybody thinks that when you run their credit, their credit score goes down. And again, this morning, the same exact client, he actually had a much higher score with us than with what he saw online. Part of it is because that's a consumer version of the credit score. Another reason is because that credit card company or that bank may be using one of the credit bureaus, TransUnion, Experian, Equifax, and that might be the lower of the three. So you always want to make sure that you're getting the right score with the right guidance on how to improve it and how it's impacting your rate that's being quoted to you. To hear more from Shmuel, highly recommend you reach out directly, approvedfunding.com slash kosher money. Don't forget the slash kosher money. And be in touch with someone who can give you the guidance. And that man's name is Shmuel Shiawitz. And now back to this week's episode. When you talk about affluence in the modern Orthodox community, I'm just thinking so many of our non-Jewish listeners, the top comment on YouTube is going to be, how do I convert to modern Orthodox uh, <laughs> Judaism? You know, here's, here's the deep irony. The deep irony is that one of the real downsides of materialism, of the, of the cost of being a modern Orthodox Jew, is that it's very hard for Gerim and Bali Tshuva. Mm. We don't, you don't realize that, that it is extraordinarily expensive. That's a barrier. That's a barrier. For, I'll leave out Gayrim for the moment. That's a complicated question. But for Bali Chuva, who we have an absolute responsibility to, to, if they, certainly when they're open to it, but also without, to be welcoming and, and want them to come back to observance. And basically, it is almost impossible for them to do so. You know, unless they're socioeconomically already of a certain level, it's simply not within their possibility to do so. I see this even with children in Bergen County day schools coming from Muncie. Now, coming from Muncie, because there are families in Muncie who are on the, let's say, proverbial left side of Muncie, who actually want something a little more akin to what the modern Orthodox schools in Bergen County offer. Right. They can't, many people, there are probably more people than them who manage to do that. They can't afford, if you say, I want my child to be exposed to certain things that I think is good for them spiritually, which is a little broader than the typical thing I could find in, in my schools in Muncie, it isn't an option for them to move to Bergen County. If you believe that your version of Torah Judaism is l'chat and I do, I do believe in the best of modern orthodoxy, 
then how do you set up a community which basically says, if you're not wealthy, sorry, you're not welcome here. What does that say? It's not to say everyone in modern orthodoxy sure. is wealthy, there are, right? There, there are tons of people who are struggling. Let's not, let's not fool ourselves. You can talk to people on you know, yeshiva day school committees. I have a very close friend who's been one of the big people who's done a lot of work in this area. Um, and I would say that he'll tell you that their committee when they make decisions, they are engaged in what we call dine nefashos. These are like capital cases in court. This is not dine mamanos, it's not civil cases. He can tell you of the stories of people who come year after year, family struggling, and one year they don't come back. They don't come back because the family is broken apart because of the stress. And it's not one family, it's not two families. As in America in general, it's true even within the modern Orthodox community. The wealth is not evenly distributed. There are lots of families in the modern Orthodox community who are barely making it. And it's not because they go on Pesach programs. They're not going on Pesach programs. Yes, you hear the occasional story of someone who comes to the Yeshiva Tuition Committee where the grandparents are paying to go on the Pesach program. So, you know, why should they do that? Or the person who turns in their, their, their own tax returns and the committee answers asks them, you know, well, where's your, you're filing separately, where's your wife's tax return? And they say, oh, that's discretionary spending. We, we can all tell those stories. And it's true. There are some people whose views and values are so messed up, they don't understand. But there are so many families in the modern Orthodox community who are struggling. Let, let me be very clear about that. I, I think what's interesting about that, though, is that if, you know, if you look at it sort of subjectively compared to the rest of the population, I know that there's a school where I live where I think the average scholarship applying family is earning upwards of $95,000, which is objectively 35 to 40% above the median income in America. So when you say that a family is struggling, like you said before, they could be making $175,000, which anywhere else they would be driving Correct. Mercedes and going to Vail, you said it was? Is that, <laughs> is that the recent... Yeah, uh, that's sorry, I, I don't... He, he, I, he I, wants I, to know. I don't... I, I, that's right. I, <laughs> I, saw it, I saw it on Instagram. I, 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 I don't know what that is. So, right. Correct. Right? It's, so it's, when you say struggling, let's just put it in perspective. Struggling is that, absolutely. In other words, you could be living in Bergen County. If you want to send four kids to Yeshiva Day School, if you make $300,000, if you're really frugal, and if you were lucky when you bought your house, you can probably handle it. That's insane. That's absolutely insane. $300,000 you know, in the state of New Jersey does not put you in the top 1% of earners, but it probably puts you in the top 5% of earners. Right? And it's insane that families like that are struggling, but these, you know, and not all families are making, let's not make no mistake, lots of families are not making $300,000 or near $300,000. So I wanted to just, something that you said before, which, which is just a terrible sort of thing to hear, which is the breakup of families because of the financial stress. And you, you were telling sort of, you were, you and I were discussing before about what you saw, like the pursuit where people are, are really pushing themselves, people in, depending on which profession they're in there, that are pushing themselves extremely hard to be able to try to earn enough money, not to live ostentatiously, but just to make it. And it has negative consequences, secondary and tertiary consequences when it comes to things like alcohol consumption that you were telling me before. Can you talk a little bit to that? One of the things that I've noticed 20 years ago, I didn't see people drink. You know, people drank on Purim. Simchas Torah, you know, was somehow Purim also. But pre-Shabbos Ruach, as it might be termed, was not a thing. You didn't see people drinking really meaningful alcohol, and especially the hard alcohol. The people I know of a certain age, I happen not really to drink at all. Uh, maybe wine for Kiddush. But the people I know who drink, they drink wine. They drink wine in moderation. They see it, true or not true, as having health benefits. This is very moderate consumption. But I've seen recently in a number of contexts where the alcohol consumption, and people were not necessarily behaving inappropriately, but I see people who are working hard all week, crazy hours, and this is what they're doing on Shabbos. Speaking to Rabbanim about things going in their communities, they talk about alcohol, they talk about marijuana now that has become legal, more so, I'm sure it's been going on before. 
what I see is people are self-medicating. They're dealing with overwhelming anxiety. They're dealing with emptiness in their lives. And this is what's filling it. And I say that not judgmentally. I say that really with compassion. I look at this and I say, boy, this is terrible. I don't make as much money as many of these people, but you know, I go through my week, I work hard, but I feel that everything I'm doing is meaningful uh, and, and, and it's wonderful. And I don't feel when I'm done, I might be, feel tired, but I don't feel drained. Um, but I'm looking at what I see and, 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 and the consequences of this are terrible. It's not the teenagers. And maybe that's true too. But teenagers always, they always like to push, push the envelope. They always like to experiment. That seems to be something in their brains at the time. But it's the adults, which means that they're struggling. Um, and this is just one particular outlet. And I think the consequences are absolutely terrible. They're terrible in the short term. They're terrible in the long term. You know, I once asked Rav Shechter, I said, Rebbe, you know, I was supposed to speak at a, com- at, at, a, at a program about medical marijuana. So I said, Rebbe, is it mutter to smoke marijuana? I wanted to hear his sort of, so he said, no. So I said, why? Well, you know, what's the specific, you know, what's, so he said to me, because in order to serve God, you have to be, you know, you have to be able to concentrate and focus. And when you're using substances like that, so you can't focus on the Rebbe anymore. And so we t- spoke a little bit about Purim as well, but I'll put Purim one day of the year aside. People should be able to have the time to focus on that which is meaningful, spiritual. And I don't mean just going to shul and just davening, but something beyond that. And that the economic pressures are doing terrible things to people. It doesn't allow this room outside of the ritual, fundamentally connect with the Rebona Shalom, to have even the time in their day to really think about what is important in this world, what is not important in this world, because they're under so much stress and pressure. It's terrible. Let's talk solutions, right? We've highlighted- that uh, what you, you want me to solve the problem? Right. You're pointing them <laughs> no, out. No, what, what, what can we do either minor or major to ease to ease some of the the economic pressures, right? If government funding is not the solution, is it removing quite a bit of the classes that might be uh, leading to higher tuitions? What can we do, assuming tuition, and, and there are some other buckets that lead to high costs of Jewish living, what can we do that we, you know, whether as a community, as an individual, what can we do that we can look back in three, five years and say, okay, we eased up some of that pressure for so many people? It's unfair to me. It's a little hard. You know, I like to say that I sit in this chair or in this building and I can say almost anything I want if I'm fundamentally responsible and I don't answer to my balabatim because the Balabatim here are the Talmidim. The Talmidim tend to listen, whether they do, but you can say almost anything to them. Rashi Yeshiva and, or, or Ramim, as you call them most places, they, they, because they don't answer to specific Balabatim, they can get up and say things. In the Yeshiva, they can express a certain message. So it's easier for me to say this. I understand this because, you know, uh, I, I'm not, I, I don't have Balabatim who are going to get upset at what I say. Or as one Rav said to me recently when I came and I spoke in his community and a group that's not used to hearing a Musser-like speech, and he said to me, yeah, you, it's good that you come. They're not used to hearing that because the rabbi here, well, I have to be their friend. So, but you can come in and you can say certain things. But I, I think that the first responsibility starts with the Rabbonim in the community, aside from Pesach programs, I think have to change the behavior, but I don't think that's a big ask. They have to start to talk about the issues that are actually important. It, it, it feels to me that in every, of every political stripe, all the issues that are focused on are everything uh, but the most important one, which is what is the Torah's view of an economically just society? And then how do you get there? There's a Gemara in Ksubos where the Gemara says, Abayi says that it used to be when he saw Itzuvim Rabbanon, a rabbinical scholar in a community who was well-liked by the people of the city, he thought it was because he was such a tzaddik, his deeds were so wonderful. But then he later realized it's because he didn't give them Musr. 
That's why the Lomuchach Lobimil Nishmai didn't rebuke them over their behavior. That's why they liked him. The Rabbanim have to start to talk about these issues. I think that there are many, many different pieces to this equation. Firstly, nobody that I know teaches the laws of tzedakah. There are hilchos tzedakah. And I'd like to note to my students that the laws of tzedakah are not in Choshemish, but they're not in the section of Shulchan Aruch that deals with civil law, uh, because nobody would listen if they were there. Instead, they're in Yoridea. They, they're in the section of Shulchan Aruch that deals with kosher food, you know, about Taras HaMeshpacha, family purity laws, all the, what we call Isr Veheter, because that's how we should think about the laws of tzedakah. I don't think, you know, I don't think we actually teach it the same way we teach the laws of Shabbos and the laws of Kashrus. It's a start, it's, that's one thing. I think that um, from an educational perspective, we need to teach that to our children and their young in their schools. We need to teach them to our Balabatim. It really has to be a priority. Um, that's number one. Number two, I think that we do have to, and this is probably not the time now to really talk about, I don't think there's enough time to talk about what was the Torah's vision of an economically just society. We don't, we live in a very different world. We don't live in an agricultural society anymore. We live in a capital society, but we do need to think about the mitzvahs, the laws of Yovel and, and Shemitah's Ksafim and the laws of Ribis, the laws of prohibited of, of usury and of loans dissolving in the Shemitah year. We need to think about what that means for our society, our community. I, I will leave only one point. I'll, I'll, I'll leave two points on this. The Torah believes in capitalism. It believes in private property. It does believe in heavily regulated capitalism. And it's the regulations that we have that I just mentioned seem to be aimed, the obvious aim is at preventing extreme distributions of wealth and poverty. That's the effect of all the lands going back in the Yovo year, that in a society in which the primary source of wealth was land, that's that's the effect, that's the outcome of such a laws. Uh, I'm not telling you the Jewish people actually ever observed it properly, but at least what God's vision has laid out for us is And however you get to that, I'm not the expert, but that at least is supposed to be the aim. In terms of the specifics in our community, I think we should have Chevrolet schools, not Cadillac schools. I wouldn't sacrifice mostly in the education, but in all the bells and whistles, I would. We have to consider the stresses upon our students. There are lots of issues to be addressed, but I think that they could be. And that means that the parents have to understand that you don't want to look at Cadillac schools, and it doesn't matter if you can afford it. I think that's a piece. I think people do need to consume less, especially if you have less. You have to accept what's important in life uh, and what's not important. But I think the more the larger issue, because you can do all of that, is that paying for private school in this country mostly is a luxury that the wealthy can afford. You just, it's not that our yeshivas, even in the modern Orthodox world, it's not that they waste so much money. If you compare what they spend to what the public schools spend, they might spend less money. And they're giving certain pieces, they're giving more of an education, other things they don't have, which maybe we can do without. Maybe the $750 million sports stadium, we certainly don't need. Although it seems in some places, it seems to be we're getting there. At the end of the day, it's not an affordable model. The way I pay, if I send my children to the public school, the way I pay their tuition is I pay real estate taxes every year over the course of my entire life. I'm 50, 60 years living in Teaneck. So if if, if $12,000 a year of my tax bill goes to the schools, that's very reasonable. If I told every from family, you pay $15,000 a year into the yeshiva fund every year, and you're going to live here for 50 years, and you know, even if you make aliyah, you still have to pay it, then it would probably solve the tuition crisis in the modern Orthodox community. Now, the problem, of course, and that's a great model, the only problem is enforcing it. And that stems from a different issue, a different values crisis, which is America is a very individualistic society. That is not the Torah's view. Western Europe, for all of its many problems, has a more communitarian orientation. America is the Wild West. It's, it's the rugged individual. That is not a Torah value whatsoever. We are very much communitarian. Even though we're capitalists, we are very communitarian. 
Um, so this would be the ideal way for me. And its advantage, if people would would stick to it, is that nobody would have outsized influence in the schools because everybody, some people couldn't afford it even at that. That's where you raise a little extra money. But basically, it would be like the machzis hashekel. It's a little more than a machzis hashekel. But nonetheless, if you told people you only need to earn $15,000 more than everybody else to be a modern Orthodox Jew, because that $15,000 would be tax deductible, I think... 98% of the community would sign on the dotted line. Of course, the people who paid already would complain, but that's also part of being communitarian, not individualistic. The other model, which is probably the more realistic one, which ha- but has downsides, and this requires Rabbanim really fighting hard, is the people in the community who really can afford to fund the schools have to step up in conjunction with the schools, tightening their belts a little bit, but it's the responsibility of those who have to, get to pay, to take care of it. That, that is the Torah's perspective. That's what the medieval kehila was. I mean, their schools were a lot less expensive, but but Tzedaka in the Gemara Baba Basra and in Shulchan Arach fundamentally is enforced taxation. That's the way it's done. The kupa, the uh, tamchoi, there wasn't a choice. You, you know, the gabai, the gabai Tzedaka had the power to assess and to force, and that's the way it was. We don't have that communal taxing power, but it's up to the people who have a lot of money to step up and create the schools and, and fund the schools. They don't have to create them for the community because those are the only two alternatives to you know government funding. We might disagree on it. It might help some in some places, less in other places. But waiting for that, every day it's destroying lives. There are people who are suffering enormous pain, and, and we can't wait for that. You know, Maybe you want to pursue all fronts, but we, we have the money I suspect even in the yeshivish community, it might be even more lopsided. We have the money to pay for our yeshivas and so that families do not stress. There are all sorts of ways of having some tuition on purely on a sliding scale, but I'm not even sure I, I love that idea. Um, but that, I think, the only way we're going to solve the problem. And until people, until the people who have the money are willing to step up, until the rabbanim are willing to step up and put that pressure and put themselves out there and put themselves a little bit on the line, people are going to continue to suffer. And that's terrible. You talked about the family and the importance that that the Orthodox Jewish community places on family and nuclear family. So, you know, one of the things that's just very interesting is that, you know, in the Ksuba, in the marriage contract between a husband and a wife, a husband basically signs up to say, I will support you, I will do everything in my power to support you and to take care of you. For better or for worse, I think at this point, and this is true, I think, in America as well as in the Orthodox community, we've now come to the point where the husband and wife working is almost not a choice. And we're not even talking about the COLA system where the wife works and the husband learns and earns much less. We're talking about just in general, if, you know, to try to reach the three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar, you know, levels that you were talking about, there aren't that many jobs that are paying three, four hundred thousand dollars. And so now that there are now there are families where the husband and the wife are working full time, intense professions to try to live. And I would imagine that that has knock on effects on Shalom bias on the the relationship between husband and wife on raising children on how many children to have with family planning which is almost something which is like a taboo issue we don't want to talk about it maybe it's happening maybe it's not nobody answers these surveys what are you seeing and what a practical advice would you give to as 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 young couples are trying to sort of think through this I would say it varies from community to community I don't get many of these questions. What I'm pretty sure is that people, firstly, they say, and I can only speak to the modern Orthodox community, that the, one of the most effective forms of birth control is yeshiva tuition. Um, and it's sad. Uh, there are lots of reasons why a family might decide not to have more children. Um, it shouldn't be, you know, it shouldn't be because of yeshiva tuition. Um, 
And that, that's actually a tragedy. Um, I think what most people are doing is they're either making the decision on their own and they're not talking to anybody, or they know which rabbi to call. That, that's the, what I call the, the, the law of natural selection of poskim. I think Rav Lichtenstein Zichron al-Racha once quoted a very big Talmud Chacham in Eretz Yisrael who said that classically major poskim were not machmirim because people would just stop asking them their shilas. So I call it the, the law of natural selection of poskim. Um, and that's, that's what happens. Uh, and I'm, I'm not being critical of anybody in this. I'm just de- describing what I think is happening. And I think that that's terrible. I, I think it's terrible for raising children. You know, ironically, I think, I may be wrong, when children are very little, they actually need their parents less. But when the children get a little older, especially teenagers, as much as they don't want it, they very much need their parents. They need the availability of their parents. This is, it's, it's not good for couples either. The reality is that contrary to this myth of 1950s America, where the husband goes to work and the wife maintains the house, despite what you said from the Ksuba, the norm was that men and women work. The difference is that work was much closer to home, if not at home. Right, you you read Aisha Schail, uh, yes, that she is she is outstanding. But if you when you talk about the husband supports his wife, yes, but she's obligated to produce masa yadayim, except for when she's nursing and pregnant, it's reduced. So the assumption always was that men and women work. That was a basic survival, but. Children also did some of the work. It was a different world, but the norm always has been people working in just not this kind of nobody's work. Was look when the sun set. Everybody went to sleep. That's the way it was. That's just there was no before artificial lighting, right? It wasn't like in this day where people can go to their law firm or or their hedge fund or whatever they go to on Wall Street and work, and they leave for the for work at six o'clock in the morning and they come back at eleven thirty at night if they're lucky, right? That that just wasn't a reality of the ancient world. Uh, they weren't sleep deprived because there was nothing to do at night. Um, they were much in that sense they were much healthier. And if you're around your children all the time. You know, today, I think, unfortunately, children are more often raised, aside from social media, but even before social media, they're raised by their peers. And that's actually not a good thing. Peers play an important role, but children are raised by their parents much less than they should be. But, it, you know, our world has changed, and that's that's not a good thing. But when two parents are working crazy careers, it's terrible. It's terrible for them. It's terrible for their children. And that's aside from questioning whether, in many cases, what they're doing is fulfilling. So many of you have donated to Kolel Chabad. They're helping Israel's poorest people get by with food and other ways to support them. Please help support Kolel Chabad. They're a nonprofit. They've been at this for over 225 years. They started in 1788. And regardless of age, ethnicity, religious observance, this organization is helping combat hunger daily. And they're doing it in partnership with the Israeli government and with the help of from people like you. They have an army of volunteers. So it helps keeps it helps keep the cost down. Um, I think they're helping now over a hundred thousand isolated seniors and they need our help. So visit kolelchabad.org slash kosher money. The link is in the show notes and help this wonderful charity support the neediest of Israel. Donate today. You can even make a recurring donation, a dollar, five dollars a week, dollar a day, whatever it is that you can give. It really helps out. We can't thank you enough. And now back to this week's episode. What didn't we ask that we should have asked? What haven't we touched on that's either glaring or an opportunity? Um, or did we just cover everything there is to possibly cover? Well, I'm sure the answer is we have not covered everything there's possibly covered. And I suppose if we all had the time, we could be here till midnight tonight. I think one issue, which is, I think, a very controversial issue, but I think I will touch upon it anyway, is that one of the downsides, again, I think it's true not only in the modern Orthodox community, of these economic pressures, and I'll say the materialism, not just the pressures, is that there are a lot of professions 
that from Jews have moved into, and it's not exclusive. I'm not suggesting it's only Jews are doing this. Everybody's doing it. But maybe when you read the newspapers, you read a little bit too much. Is there are a lot of areas that Jews from Jews are involved in because it makes a lot of money and are not necessarily what I would call Osig Things that are not productive for society, things that have very little social utility. One of my lines that I've used, and it's probably not my line, uh, is that in, in our society, with some exceptions, there tends to be an inverse relationship between the remuneration uh, and the social utility of jobs. Um, finance plays an important role in a capitalist society, but there's a not insignificant part of the world of finance, um, which is extractive, which is very damaging to society. Um, I have talked to people in the world of finance. Some people might want to push back on this, but people I've spoken to people in high-powered positions who, when asked uh, what is the social utility of hedge funds, shrug their shoulders because nobody can give an answer to that particular question. Even when you go into the world of business, uh, one particular area where there's a lot, again, I'm not saying it's exclusively, a lot of Jewish money is in nursing homes, and you read far too many stories in the newspapers about it. Uh, I know wise people who like to say it's not clear how much of a profit you could turn in the nursing home business if you were actually doing things properly. Uh, And we read far too many things in the newspapers, but it's a big place to be. And again, a properly run nursing home actually is Osik B'yishuva Shalolam, but you have all sorts of temptations to cut corners because if you have more money, A, you feel a pressure to earn more money, and if you have more money, you want more money. Um, And I think this is very bad. You know, even go to to something that's not new, the the, the field of law. In the field of law, there's some wonderful things in the field of law to be done. They tend to pay very little. The kinds of things that pay a lot tend to be talk to the people working it. I don't think they're going to tell you that's that much social utility uh, in what they do. Um, And that's bad for society. Um, Although arguably, if they don't do it, somebody else might do it. So you'll say, okay, what's the difference? But it's bad for you as a human being. I can't imagine being in a job that if if you thought about it and you perceived that this is really a bad business to be in and you work for there six days a week. I don't know what it would feel like coming home on the seventh day. You know, how fulfilled would you feel? You know, I think there are lots of people who work in all sorts of different areas who do things that are meaningful, uh, meaningful in the world of capitalism, people who run small businesses, people who create jobs for people, I think are wonderful things. It doesn't have to be, it's not not about learning, it's not about being intellectual, but they do meaningful things aside from the standard professions. But the most lucrative things, the way our society has constructed itself tend to be things that are not so productive, that don't have such social utility. And it's, again, it's bad for, it's bad for the community, it's bad for the world, and it's bad for the individuals who have to do that. Ellie, I think we just lost our Goldman Sachs sponsorship. What do you <laughs> think? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. You got to say it, and Goldman Sachs has yet to sponsor, but we're available. So, yeah. call us. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Weeder, thank you so very much. This was really enjoyable, and uh, we really appreciate you taking the time and opening up your uh, office and conference room to us. Yeah, I'm excited for round two because uh, the amount of comments we're going to get, we're going to have to do a whole. Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to have to do a follow a whole, up on uh, this one. Letters to the editor. Thank you, Rabbi Thank Weider. you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. But before you go, I sat down with Dean Noam Wasserman, who we had on this podcast. His video has over 70,000 views, as we discussed in this little mini interview. He has a very exciting opportunity. I had found out about this on the spot. This opportunity is literally worth tens of thousands of dollars. And I think you'll enjoy it, right? If you are making X thousands of dollars per year and you want to level up, take a look and a listen on what 
Dean Noam Wasserman has to say about this opportunity. A quick break from this week's episode. We're here with Dean Wasserman. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about an exciting opportunity that I actually just found out about today. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me again. It was a delightful episode that we got to do a little while ago. Over 70,000 uh, views. Oh, <laughs> I should check once in a while to see. <laughs> if you look at the mission of Kosher Money, it's to be able to arm people for better Parnassa. Episode by episode, giving them the tips that are going to enable them to do that. There's some people who can benefit from a more intensive foundation building and approach to being able to improve their Parnassa. And that's something now at Yeshiva University, where I'm the dean of the business school, that we have a real opportunity for a whole bunch of people from the yeshiva world to be able to bolster their Parnassa prospects. What we did after two years of designing a very world-class MBA program, we have now debuted it and is now in its second year. And we now also have a fund that one of our alumni, whose son, a Haredi son who benefited from our MBA program, decided to create in order to be able to foster more people are going to be able to take advantage of this, that people can get a half scholarship into the MBA program. It is foundation building skills. It is market ready skills. It is building on the real strengths, the world-class strengths of Yeshiva University when it comes to entrepreneurship, when it comes to finance, when it comes to marketing and all of the other things that really build a world-class business person. And so people can now come instead of having to come physically to Washington Heights to be able to take these classes, they can come online to this very sophisticated design program that enables them to do it at the speed that they want, to be able to do it starting when they want. There are three different starts during the year. They can do it intensively in a year and a quarter, or they can spread it out over three years. They can speed it up and slow it down in the middle while being able to build this major foundation for being able to have the Parnassa prospects and be able to change the trajectory of being able to provide for their family and being able to have the excellence academically at YU, but also the Torah values that are infused into the program and are very consistent within it. Who's the right person for this scholarship? What age are we talking about? What financial bucket? There's so many different people, ages, you know, teenagers, 20s, 30s, 40s, you name it. Who's the right fit? Who, who are we talking to? First off, in terms of age, it's unlimited. <laughs> the key thing is that we want people who have gotten a little bit of work experience, so they'll be able to contribute to the program and gain from it because they have some real world experience. Otherwise, if there is a financial need, people can then apply to be able to get that one. They can apply first for admission to the program, indicate when they're applying for that, that they would like to be able to see if they can qualify financially for this half scholarship. And then the application process is pretty well honed by now. Um, right now, we have five people who have taken advantage of it, who have been able to benefit from it, Three of them are doing it from Eretz Yisrael. Mm. Two of them are learning in the mirror. Mm. They are able to be able to have a little bit of the work experience that they've gotten, keep learning, but at the time that is best for them, whether it's at night, after they've done the Siddharam during the day, or if someone is working during the day and then they can be doing it at night, if they want to do it in the morning, if whatever fits best for them, from seven time zones away, they're full participants wow. in this very sophisticated online program. This is not just taking class and televising it. We invested for those two years in using the full range of tools that enable us to have people do role plays online so that they would be able to practice difficult conversations, for them to be able to negotiation exercises, for them to be able to have very sophisticated discussions that they can be able to analyze a business case and things like that. And so anyone who is going to be able to benefit from taking a little bit of time to be able to invest in themselves, build their foundation for life, be able to engage really in the true chinuch. If you think about the first time that chinuch appears in the Torah, it's when Avram is talking about Vayarchet Chani Chav. Rashi talks about what does that mean there? 
And what does it mean in general for Chinuch? To invest in someone developing a role that they're going to play in life, being able to build that foundation for the decades of life. And so this program is a great fit for anyone who wants to be able to step back and say, by intensely being able to develop things beyond listening to the great episode after episode of Kosher Money, let me focus on being able to build these skills, and then I'll be able to do a real role in the world, a real task that will be able to enable the Parnassah for my family. Where can one learn more about this if they want to apply? So they can, if they want, either hop on on the web. They can just do a search for Shiva University and MBA program mm -hmm. or email me directly, noam at yu.edu, and I will put you in contact with the executive director of our graduate programs. Spectacular. Thank you so much for listening to another incredible episode of Kosher Money. I'm your host, Ellie Langer. We are on the Living L'Chaim Network. So if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, head over to YouTube, search Living L'Chaim, subscribe there. We have a lot of awesome videos, a lot of awesome podcasts, and our episodes are now being featured in the Mishpacha magazine. So visit mishpacha.com or pick up a fresh magazine weekly for more on kosher money a lot of great content in there thank you to our friends at living smarter jewish livingsmarterjewish.org if you need a financial coach an advisor someone who can give you direction you don't have the resources tap into zevi and his team over at the ou's living smarter jewish you will thank me later probably sooner rather than later thank you to our friends at approved funding kolel chabad and Infinity Land Services. We couldn't do this without you. And I highly recommend you guys take advantage of the YU's new fund for their scholarship. Really excited about that. More info in the show notes. Reach out to Dean Noam Wasserman. Well, that's it for this week's episode. If you have feedback, visit livinglechaim.com. You can give us feedback on guest suggestions. You can give us feedback on things you want to hear, topics, if you want us to wear a different color shirt. We're open to everything. We are very appreciative that you've taken the time to listen. Um, you support us. Your feedback has been incredible. We're just getting warmed up. Until next time, keep your money kosher. I'm Ellie Langer, and I will see you then. Living L'chaim.